Shall we then come to the Lord in a prayer for the illumination of his spirit as we read his word? Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we desire to uh, experience a richness in your Son, Jesus Christ, that can only be found when he pours out his life-giving water upon our lives. Lord, we live in a parched land, a land without hope, without strength, and without life. But we come into this place, for here in your house, in your sanctuary, Lord, are streams of living water. We pray, Heavenly God and Father, that you would pour them out now, so that we might be refreshed, renewed, and committed to living for you, the living, loving God, who keeps covenant with his people forever, and whose name we pray, amen. Then turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel, we'll read the fourth chapter. You can find that on page 269, 269 in your pew Bible. And we're going to begin now within the story of Samuel, a cycle in which Samuel is not mentioned. Samuel doesn't come back into the story of 1 Samuel until chapter 7. So we had in chapter 1 the miraculous conception and birth of Samuel. We have in chapter 2 the need for this new priest, for this new prophet, this new man of God. In chapter 3 we see what he is called to do, which is to bring the word, the light into the darkness. Now in chapters 4, 5, and 6 we see a a circumstance, the, the context in which min, the ministry of Samuel t- will take place. So chapter 4, 1 Samuel 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord, or the word of Samuel rather, came to all Israel. You'll remember that was the end of our text last week. Our text begins now. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek, And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemy. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. As they have been to you, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 
A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of that outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, How did it go, my son? He, brought, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, someone once said, it's not really quite sure who, but nonetheless, someone once said that if you do not learn from history, you will be doomed to repeat it. And that's not a word for those who are attending a history class. That's a word for people that are living, that are walking, serving in this world. We need to learn from our past. We need to learn about what's happened before because if we don't, then the bad things that have happened in the past will happen again in the present or in the future. And I think we see that in some respects. We see that in our day in many respects. We hear voices that are repeating promises and ideas and plans and philosophies that have already been tried catastrophically within our world and history. Marxism, for example, is making a bit of a comeback in our day. Karl Marx, and he's of course the father of communism, and we know how communism worked out, uh, and yet people are now again advocating for his kind of way of doing things. And, and they tell us, they say, you know what, this time it'll be different. This time it'll work because, well, because we're different. You see, we're different. We, we will make sure this time that blessing comes and not the judgment of the past. And so it's good for people to remember that they need to learn from history because else they'll doom, be doomed to repeat it. That's true for the church as well. It's not just true for others. That's true for us in this day in which we are called to be a light and a witness to the world, which we are called to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, to walk in the way of His Word. We need to learn also from history and understand how we as church 
are to fulfill the calling that's placed upon us, whether it's as parents, whether it's as congregation or federation, whether it's as witnesses in a global ministry on this earth. How do we, how do we walk in the way of faith and in the way of the covenant with the Lord? Well, history gives us a very good way. Uh, history tells us what to do and history tells us what not to do. History tells us, in this case of 1 Samuel 4, what not to do. And what the Israelites failed to do in 1 Samuel 4 is they failed to learn from history too. They failed to learn from the history that they knew and understood from those that taught them, their parents, their Sunday school teachers, their Christian school teachers or moms and dads. They They knew the story of the beginning of time. They knew the story of God in the Garden of Eden, that beautiful kingdom in which He dwelt as King. They knew the story of man's calling. Remember, humanity was put in that garden and their responsibility was to watch it, to guard it, to protect it. There was an enemy in those days. You remember that. There was an enemy, a snake, who wanted to get into the garden and man was to make sure that he stayed out. Man was to preserve this beautiful place of peace, this beautiful place of joy, this beautiful place of blessing, this place where God reigned, where God lived and dwelt with His people. Remember, God walked in the garden back and forth. He dwelt with His people. It was a place of such beauty, such wonder, such richness. There was no disease, no death. There was no divorce. There was no fear. There was no fighting. There was no anger. There was no abuse. There was... There was only joy and wonder and blessing. And God said to man, now I want you to value this. I want you to recognize that I'm the source of it and I want you to defend it. And man said, you know what? Actually, we have a better offer, an offer to rebel against you. And we think that offer is going to produce a much better outcome for us. We think that's going to make our lives so much better. So we're going to go with this offer from the serpent. We're going to follow him. And then the wilderness came, and death came, and divorce came, and abuse came, and war came. Because, of course, the devil's a liar. And the people suffered. But against all expectation, against everything any one of us would do, God said, I'm going to save some of these people. I'm going to redeem some of these people and and he began a work of such great and glorious redemption that would end with the cross of calvary with the son dying on the cross his own son his beloved son hanging on the cross god began such a glorious great work of salvation that that our hearts tremble at the thought of it the the wonder of it and he and he in he engaged his people in that work he he invited them into that by his covenant with abram with isaac with jacob He said to to Abram, I pick you and I pick your children and and I pick all your descendants after you. They're my people and I'm going to bless, I'm going to save the world through you. And then he gave them that land, now bigger than the Garden of Eden. The Garden was small. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament in Palestine was big. Everywhere Abram's foot fell, the Lord says, I give this land to you. And then he gave Abram and Abram's descendants, the way to live in fellowship with him by faith. By faith that's worked out in gratitude according to the will of God by his law. God said to his people, in this garden, in this kingdom, in this 
temple of my home. Here's how blessing comes. Here's the path to walk. Here's the way to live. Enjoy. And he gave them his word. He gave them his commandments. He gave them his sacrifices and all of the symbols of the Old Testament. And what did man do? What did Israel do? What does the church so very quickly do? We forget the lesson of our past. We forget the lesson of 1 Samuel 4. 1 Samuel 4 in which Israel goes out to battle against the Philistines. They camp at Ebenezer, which is at least a little bit ironic because it means the stone of help. It suggests a dependence upon the Lord. It, it will come to mean that in, in 1 Samuel 7. The Philistines encamp at Aphek, about two miles away, and they drop in line against Israel. And the battle is engaged. Here is, here is something at least good, or at least from a, a certain perspective. I know that many people today take issue with the Old Testament, all of its bloodshed and all of its war and all of that, and they don't understand what's going on in passages like this. But here is a, a passage where God says to His holy people, protect, keep safe this place of sanctuary. Keep safe this place of blessing, of harmony and unity and peace. Here is the kingdom. In this kingdom, there is a more excellent way. And remember, the Lord had placed that kingdom at the crossroads of the nations so that as people came out of their dark, dismal worlds, as they came out of their societies filled with brokenness, pain and sorrow, as they left their homes and families where there was division, tension and anger, as they traveled through Israel, they'd come into this place where they were to experience light, where they were to experience blessing, where they were to be amazed at how things were done. They were to walk through Israel and like the Queen of Sheba, when Solomon's king, marvel at how good it was, how blessed it was. They were to be drawn like moths to a flame into the kingdom of God that they might join with God's people in celebrating God's grace. But in order for that to happen, This kingdom had to be preserved. The glory of God had to be preserved. The priority of God had to be preserved. What made Israel so special? What made them so different? It wasn't them. It was the presence of their God. It was the presence of the covenant God who chose to dwell among them and to bless them and to give them life. What makes Everly so blessed today? It is that she has been baptized, that God has said, Everly, I choose you. I claim you as my own. And Israel was to protect that. Israel was to guard that. Israel was to cultivate that. And that meant, that meant making sure that there were no enemies in the land. Maybe enemies isn't the right word. Maybe tumors is a better word. You know what doctors do when, you, when they find a tumor in your body. They, they take steps to eradicate it. Radiation, chemotherapy, surgery. We've got to get that out because we know that if we leave that in there, things are going to go badly. Things are not going to go well for you. You're going to get very sick, maybe even die. We need to get rid of that tumor. None of us has a problem with that, do we? We may have a problem with the fact that the Lord said to Israel when they came into Canaan, You've got to eliminate all these tumors. You've got to get rid of all these nations. You've got to get rid of all these amorous. We get a little offended in the modern context. But God knew. 
God knew that that if there is darkness within the sanctuary of the Lord, if there are enemies dwelling in the temple of God's worship, then judgment will follow. Then judgment will follow. That's the lesson of history. That's the lesson of Noah and the ark. That's the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the lesson of so many. Moments in redemptive history where God displays His condemnation of sin. That's the lesson of of our exile from the Garden of Eden. God said, your sin cannot dwell in my presence. That's the lesson of death. Death says to us that we are under the judgment of God for our sin. God knows the truth even if we want to deny it. That sin is a serious business and it needs to be dealt with effectively. And He's promised to do that through his son Jesus Christ he says to the church just keep that focus keep that central hold that light so very high in the midst of this dark world so that when the nations came through when the people come into your midst they will say wait a second why are you so different when they come and interact with us within the world that they'll say why is your marriage so different? Why are your parenting skills so different? Why is your business priority so different? Why are you? What is the reason for the hope that is in you? That is what the nations of the world should see and experience from us. That is what the Lord established Israel for in the Old Testament. And that is why it was important that the Philistines be defeated. So that this kingdom would glow with a brightness that drew all men to God's saving grace. And for that reason, you would have expected that when the battle was engaged, the victory would be a guarantee. I mean, you'd imagine that the Lord, who would bless His people, having given them this task, would fight on their behalf. And yet the thing that we read in our text is that Israel was defeated before the Philistines, and they killed about 4,000 of the Israelites on the battlefield. 4,000 was a lot of people. That was a significant military loss. Enough to make the Israelites wonder what's going on. Why has the Lord defeated us today, they ask, before the Philistines? On the one hand, you might say, if if, if you look at this picture purely from a, 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 a military point of view, it might be reasonable to understand why Israel lost. The Philistines were one of the very first nations to be able to um, manipulate and to use iron uh, in their weaponry. And so they had a military advantage over most nations. And you might think uh, this is a typical experience for the church, I think, in, in their battles in this world. Because when we fight uh, as church, when we fight as families, when we fight as individuals, when we fight as congregations against the oppressive philosophies, ideas, spiritual struggles, remember what Paul says, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against uh, 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 principalities and against the, the spiritual realm of darkness. When we fight the good fight of the faith, we so often do so in a position of great weakness, don't we? We haven't the near, nearly the financial clout of so many in this world. We don't have the political influence of so many in this world. We simply don't have the weaponry, you might say, to advance the gospel as the world advances its immorality. The immorality of our world is like the, 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 the fog of, of life that, that creeps into every crack and corner. You see how immorality 
immorality invades our homes. You see how no matter how hard we try to, to keep sin out of it, uh, the, the, the world finds a way in outside of our churches. We try to keep our churches places of purity. And you see how quickly sin can creep even into our churches. You see in churches increased divorce rates. You see in churches increased struggles with homosexuality, with, with immorality generally, with drug use, with drink, all the rest. You see how the enemy is so able to persistently fight and you think how can we possibly stand against these enemies think of Everly again think of Tyler and Alicia and the call that they have to raise this daughter in the fear of the Lord and they have committed to doing that how are they possibly going to be able to defeat Instagram Snapchat social media generally how are they going to be able to defeat academia how are they going to be able to defeat all of the influences of the philosophies of this world that Everly will hear will be exposed to will begin to Uh, understand as she grows and develops how can they possibly keep her free from any of that why has the why does the nation why why does the church so often falter and fail you might say well it's rather obvious it's because we are weak because we are frail because we are not a people with great resources if we just had more resources if we had more political clout if we had more money that's what people sometimes think But the Israelites of our text have it right when they ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord done this? Why has God defeated us today? They understand that they have a a captain at the head of their armies that is greater than any captain in the world. They understand that their God is the Lord of hosts. That's a a word, a, a description of God that's for the very first time in the Bible found in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 1, you remember how Hannah cried out to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord whose power is greater than anything in this world, and the Lord of hosts can defeat the Philistines with one Israelite. Jonathan will prove that. David will prove that. The Lord had promised that in His Word to His people. He says, one will chase thousands when I go out with you in, in war. So the Israelites are right when they understand that it is not the Philistines' superior weaponry. It's not their increased or greater numbers. It is not their military tactics. It is the Lord who has defeated Israel. And why has He done this? That's the right question. That is exactly the right question. But they answer it very poorly because they forgot to learn from history. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines, they ask? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I think we learn, don't we, in Sunday school, I think many of our young members, our boys and girls, learn about the ark of the covenant, that box that God gave to Israel. Do you remember what he put in the box? The Ten Commandments, jar of manna, Aaron's budding rod. Do you remember what was on top of that box? Two angels, two cherubim with their wings covering that box. And that box was a picture of the throne of God. That's what God called it, His throne. That's where He sat to rule the world, to rule His people. And so when they say, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it uh, to the battlefield, they're saying, let's go get the throne of God. They're saying, really, let's go get God. We need God on our side. We need God to protect us. We need God to fight our battles for us. That's that's actually a very good thing, isn't it? 
That's a good response on the part of the Israelites. They, they see that they cannot defeat their enemies, that the church can never overcome the problems that it faces in this world, the immorality, the, 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 the sin of this life, unless the Lord fights on our behalf. So go get God, they say. And so God was sent for. And His ark came. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who's enthroned on the cherubim. Oh yes, those cherubim. You know, we've met cherubim before in the Bible. Actually, you meet a cherubim very early on in the story of the Bible. You meet a cherubim in chapter 3. Because when God excommunicated His son and daughter from His kingdom, He put an angel with a flaming sword in the way so that they could never come back in. Because that's what cherubim represent. They represent guarding the holiness of God. They are the ones with all of the wings that cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are a perpetual message to all of Israel that God is not to be trifled with. That God is not to be mistreated. That God is not to be abused. That God is not to be to be a trinket that you grab when you need Him in the moments that you think you need Him. That you don't go to God at the, la- at, at the last moment when you think there's no other help, but that you go to God and live in fellowship with Him every day. Israel says, go, go get God, but, but they forget the God that they're getting. They forget that He's the righteous and holy God, the God of the Garden of Eden, the God who hates sin, the God who condemns sin in all of its expressions, the God who excommunicates those who live by sin. They forget who God is, that He's holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. They forget. They forget. And we forget too. Oh, we forget too so often. In the church, as individuals, as parents, as community, we forget. As individuals, we can forget who God is. Maybe we forgot Him last night. Maybe last night we were doing things that God condemns in His Word. And we know God condemns it in His Word. But we imagine that somehow or another the Lord's going to be okay with it because we're going to be in church on Sunday morning. But we forget who God is. Sometimes we forget who God is in our business dealings. Sometimes we forget who God is in our dealings with our spouse. Sometimes we get, forget who God is in our dealings with our children. Sometimes as a congregation we forget who God is. And we don't call out sin. And we don't demand genuine repentance. And we don't Say the tough things that Samuel had to say to Eli the chapter before. Sometimes we forget who God is. We don't learn the lesson of history. That God is sovereign and mighty, gracious and good. He is loving in His compassion and steadfast in His love. But He is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. We forget. And Israel was so excited when the ark came, they shouted and the ground shook. And two miles away, think about how much noise these people made. That two miles away, the Philistines got afraid. They were terrified. And notice, 
They knew a thing or two about this God, didn't they? They didn't get it quite right. They get it kind of sideways a bit. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Well, it's not mighty gods, is it? It's only one. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians. Well, that's pretty good. They, they knew that. With every sort of plague in the wilderness. Well, that's not quite right, is it? Not every sort of plague. There was only ten of them. And it wasn't in the wilderness. It was in their house. But nonetheless, they'd learned a little thing or two about this God. They'd learned about his power and his glory. They'd learned that he was a God who destroyed those who opposed him. And instead of repenting, instead of bowing the knee before this God, the Philistines say, well, let's be men and fight. And they did. And Israel was defeated. And it was a very great slaughter. 4,000 was a lot. 30,000 was an extraordinary amount. And the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Israel forgot. Israel forgot who God is. Hophni and Phinehas were the ones that brought the Ark of the Covenant out to the land, out to the battlefield. Hophni and Phinehas, these wicked, immoral, perverse men. These leaders of the church at the time who were not leading in the way of righteousness, who had been appointed for the purpose of displaying the glory of God to the nation, teaching the church how to walk in fellowship with God, encouraging God's people at the blessedness that they enjoy by virtue of being covenant members. The priests were to explain just how great and glorious God was and how the church was so richly blessed and how living for the Lord was not a burden but a blessing, was not a chore but a a wonderful opportunity to experience the grace of God, the ongoing compassion and mercy of God. The priests were the ones who were to lead Israel to glory and glorify this God. These priests were only interested in themselves. They'd forgotten They thought they could be immoral. They thought they could be wicked. They thought they could be deceiving and deceptive. And God wouldn't care. So often that's the case in the church, isn't it? I mean, quite literally at times, isn't it? You read about stories of churches, sometimes even big global churches that are brought suddenly down by a leader, a a head of the church who's discovered to be an immoral man, a a man who steals, puts his hands in the purse of the congregation to put in his own pocket the wealth that he enjoys. You see, so often these, these Church leaders in the news who think that they can get away with rejecting God's claim upon their lives. But then you see it in church congregations as well. You don't just see it in some individuals within the congregation. You can see churches celebrating perversion. Celebrating, putting putting symbols in their front windows so that as everybody drives by, they go, look, look at us. We rejoice in the rebellion of God. We celebrate those who decide to make war with God. And they think those churches will be blessed. They think that those churches will walk with the Lord, that they will be blessed by God's faithfulness. Those churches decay and diminish and are destroyed in the end. Because God is a holy God. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God who keeps covenant with His people. Never miss that. He keeps covenant with his people. That is, of course, for us the great comfort. That's the great comfort for Everly. When Everly grows up 
And she comes to dad or mom and she says, Dad, I'm, I'm struggling with God's providence in my life. I'm struggling with the future. I'm struggling with what to do. I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with fear. I'm, I'm struggling with, with these burdens that I have to carry. Then, then Tyler can bring her back to the baptismal font and can say, yeah, you know what, though? God, God gave you a promise here. He said he would avert all evil or turn it to your profit. So if you're struggling right now, then just wait because God's going to do a great thing. Trust him because God always keeps his word. Or if she comes and, and she struggles with guilt or shame or she struggles with the embarrassment of making mistakes or, or she struggles with the, with the way that, that, that the world perceives her and she says, I'm, I'm not worthy of, of affection. I'm not worthy of respect. Uh, it can happen in this world. The abuse of this world pushes us so far down. And then Alicia can bring her back to the water of the baptism and say, wait a second, wait a second, Everly, just remember... Remember what Jesus said to you that He forgives all your sins. Remember that He has crowned you with salvation. Remember He has clothed you as a princess within the kingdom of God. Don't forget how blessed you are in Jesus Christ. And He'll do it because He keeps covenant. He keeps His word forever. Or maybe she struggles with the call, the command the challenges of this life. And she says, Dad and Mom, I don't know if I can do it. I don't have the strength to do it. I don't know if I can bear up under this trial. And we can bring her back to the water of baptism and say, Everly, the Spirit has given you a word and the Spirit will keep that word because God is faithful to His promises. That's what the church has to proclaim to its members and to the world. God is faithful to His covenant. What a comfort that is for all of us. What a comfort to know today. If we're coming today after a particularly disobedient night and we're coming to church, you can know again in the water of baptism there's hope for you here. There is forgiveness for you here. If you're struggling with God's difficult providence in your life, there is a word for you here, a word of promise, a word of life. If you're struggling with what you're called to do and whether you can do it, you think, I can't possibly walk this path. It's too much. Be equipped. Be enabled. Be encouraged. Because God, the God of the covenant, will keep His word to you. You know how I know He'll keep His word to Everly? How I know He'll keep His word to you? The cross of Calvary. Because God does everything necessary to save His people, even sacrificing His own Son on the cross. You know God will keep His Word to you because God has kept His Word to you in Jesus Christ. Oh, God is faithful to His covenant. That is such a profound comfort for any and all who know the Lord. But it's also the reason for what happens in our text. This messenger comes and tells everybody what's happened. There's this great cry, another cry that Eli here sitting by the gate. Eli, who was supposed to be a gatekeeper. He was a priest. That's what priests are called in the Bible. They're called gatekeepers. Because he was supposed to keep out the wickedness. He was supposed to stand guard by the temple of the Lord and ensure that the holiness of God was maintained. And he chose not to. Because not only, not only did he know what his boys were doing, 
He failed to deal with it. He didn't excise that tumor. He didn't condemn that wickedness. And now that messenger comes to Eli at the gate and he tells him, we've lost. Oh, and by the way, your sons have died. Oh, and the ark has been captured. And at that moment, Eli faints. He falls backwards and he lands on his head and he breaks his neck and he dies. For he was an old man and was a heavy man. It's an odd thing to say, isn't it? That he was heavy. Seems unnecessarily specific in this moment. But it's not. It's actually very significant. Intentional. Not his weight. The word that is used to describe his weight. Because that word shows up in a few verses again. For his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard all this news, she went into labor. She has a child, and she names that child Ichabod. The kabod part of Ichabod is glory. can be translated in the Bible as glory. So when it says Ichabod, and then she says the glory of, has departed from Israel, the kabod part is the glory. The kabod has departed from Israel because kabod can be translated as glory but it can also be translated as fat heavy weighty Eli was glorious it's a way you can translate that text and the glory has departed from Israel or the weight has departed from Israel we use the language of weight in the same way. We say somebody throws their weight around and we don't literally mean their physical weight. We mean their influence, their power, their ability, their honor, their glory. And the Lord says, in response to all of this wickedness in the days of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, He says, I, I bring judgment upon you. I bring judgment upon this land. And I depart from it. I depart from this people that have rejected me. I depart from this nation that has turned from me. I bring judgment. My glory condemns you. And the reason God does that is because He's faithful to His covenant. We have to see that. We have to see how in chapter 2, A man of God came to Eli and said to Eli, judgment was coming. And in chapter 3, Samuel was called and given a word of judgment upon Eli. And in chapter 4, that judgment falls. That judgment comes with such devastating swiftness. Oh, there's a period of waiting. Notice that between chapter 2 and chapter 4, there's waiting. Eli's eyes increasingly get dim. So that by chapter 4, he's completely blind. In chapter 3, his eyes are dim. In chapter 2, in chapter 1, they're not. Which is to say that these chapters cover a significant period of his time, of his life. They don't happen one day after another. They happen over the period of years because the Lord is patient. Because the Lord is gracious. Because the Lord's calling Eli to do the right thing. To repent. 
to deal with his sons effectively, to declare judgment upon the wicked, to discipline the church members who are living in sin. To say to the congregation of Israel at that time, whatever else we value in this life, our children, our grandchildren, our businesses, our relationships, whatever else we think is important, the most important thing, people, the most important thing is the glory of God, is the holiness of God. The blessedness that we have as a nation against an enemy so powerful is that God dwells in our midst, that He is our God and we are His people. Our greatest inheritance is the promise of God and His covenant. And if we don't live in the light of that covenant, if we don't walk with the Lord, we don't escape His claim, we only suffer His judgment. The Lord's word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. A word that he speaks every time the water of baptism is poured out. Every time those promises are given, we're called to the obligation of faith and obedience because the Lord says, those who do not walk in this way are under judgment. And that judgment will fall one day. It might not fall today. It might not fall tomorrow. But it will come. It will come because God is faithful to His covenant. And so the church needs to learn its lesson. The church needs to learn this lesson. The church didn't, of course, in the old covenant. The glory of the Lord here departs from Israel, though it only departs for a short time. It would depart again in Ezekiel 10 and 11 at the end of the Monarchy again, before the exile. There's another connection. There's a connection in chapter 3 about the beginning, the tingling of the ears. That's a word used at the beginning of the monarchy. It's a word used at the end of the monarchy. Here again, the glory departing, beginning, the glory will depart at the end. The Lord is saying to His people, learn your lesson. Learn the lesson of history. Because I am the Lord God. I am the Holy One. I am the one faithful to His covenant. I will bless all those who trust in me. I will fight for those who walk with me. But I will condemn those who reject me. I will destroy those who refuse to live with me. And as a church, we need to learn that lesson. As parents, we need to learn that lesson. As children, we need to learn that lesson. We need to, every time we see the water of baptism, remember again what a privilege that is and what a warning it is. And learn your lesson, lest you be doomed to repeat it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word and for its call to genuine repentance and to genuine faith. Lord, you've established your church for the purpose of shining the light of your grace to the world. Help us to do that today. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to do that in our own lives and homes. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to, in all that we do and say, acknowledge that you are our priority, that you are our great good, and that being in fellowship with you is our most precious blessing. And whatever might turn us away to the right or to the left from that, help us to reject it, help us to turn away from it. And help us to cling only to you in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.